we're, we're on. Good morning. As we continue working our way through God's Word, we're working our way through Acts. Today we'll be in Acts chapter 15, so if you have your Bibles, please join with me and you can follow along. Today we're going to be looking at something called the Council at Jerusalem. Which will later on in church tradition become known as the First Ecumenical Council. Because as the church goes forward, whenever they've had issues to resolve, um, before the church split into many pieces, but while it was still largely one body of believers, whenever they had serious issues, they would get together as many representatives from all over the church as they could, and they would call that an ecumenical council. And they, they did that based on what happened here in Jerusalem. This was kind of their model. So Acts chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't, cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between, them and, between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul talking, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders and the whole church 
decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for, the, for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. I'd like to say that there's a lot going on here. <laughs> because I always say that, because it's always true. So we've had up to this point a description of the gospel working outward. Jesus had originally told his disciples, hey, you just hang out in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, and then go, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we've seen through Acts how that kind of played out. We saw that Peter preaching at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming on the believers and them powerfully testifying to God in the languages of everybody that was hearing them. We see persecution come and scatter the church and that leads to revival in Samaria where the Samaritans receive and they're kind of kind of first cousin to the Jews. So it would have been shocking to the Jews that the Holy Spirit was working there, but they could tolerate that. But when Peter goes to the Gentiles and, and preaches in Caesarea at the home of Cornelius, that really blows their mind because those are like, those are the Gentiles. Those are the, they're not, they're not God's people. Can, and they're just, they're amazed. Wow, even the Gentiles are repenting because they've kind of forgotten the story that they're part of. And because of that, we're going to come to this situation here. Now, we saw long ago, I say this every time, kind of setting the stage, but we saw long ago how God made a good creation and we messed it up and God was not content to let things rest there but began a plan of redemption that he began with one man, Abraham, from whom he made a family, from which he made a nation, and he made that nation to carry his name and his witness before the world and it was his plan always to redeem the whole world through them. Now, it's been a long time since the call of Abraham, a long time, probably something around 2,000 years at this point. But the Jews had been holding on faithful. But if you're holding on faithful that long, like I've said before, sometimes you can lose the thread of the story. And you forget 
what your calling is. You forget what your relationship is. And we're going to see some questions of belonging coming up here at the Council of Jerusalem. We see these, men, these people who are coming up from Judea to Antioch where God is working and they're, they're telling the people, oh, you know, what, what's happened to you isn't enough. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Well, they've forgotten the story. They've kind of forgotten that they are a people chosen by God, that they belong to God, and they're starting to act more like God belongs to them. They're starting to think they're the gatekeepers of God and that they can dictate the, the terms. It can be confusing, the relationship between, between things sometimes. There is a world of difference between me saying, oh, that person is my king, and oh, that's my cat. In, in the one case, when I say, that's my king, that's who I belong to. There is a familiarity about it because I belong to that king, but it's I belong to him. When I say, that's my cat, there is, well, maybe that's a bad example because cats can be pretty aloof and uh, on their own terms. That's my dog. <laughs> Again, that's familiarity, but it expresses a different relationship. That's the dog that kind of belongs to me and I take care of him. Well, when you're in familiarity for a long time in a relationship, you can sometimes blur the lines of which way it goes. So here we have people who are acting as if God belongs to them and they can kind of decide who gets in. Now Paul, in, in response to this very situation, is going to write that wonderful letter to the Galatians and uh, that probably refers to things that happened before the Council of Jerusalem because by the time we get to the Council of Jerusalem, the first pe person that speaks uh, about the Gentiles is Peter and he does so well. But we know in the letter that Paul writes to Galatians, he'll explain that there was a time where Peter was up in Antioch with the, with the believers there and was eating with them, but when, when Jews from Judea came up, he, he wouldn't eat with the unbeliever, or with the Gentiles anymore. And, um, Paul had to confront him about his hypocrisy of, as if acting like there was a second class of citizens. So here we have these people kind of forgetting, you know, putting the cart before the horse, as it were. Because of this, Paul and Barnabas sharply dispute with them because they're the ones that have brought the message here. They've seen God working in power. They've seen him doing new things. They've seen miracles. They've seen, you know, demons driven out. They've seen people raised from the dead. So, of course, they're, gonna, they're not going to accept a second kind of status for them. So they go to Jerusalem to resolve it because they want there to be unity in the church. One of the temptations uh, in, the, in the spiritual life, in the Christian life, can be to assume that the way things happened for you and your group is the normative pattern of how God works in people. And when God does something sovereignly that doesn't look like what he did with you, sometimes that can arouse suspicion and division. It's one of the commonplaces of church history that whenever there's a new wave of revival, sometimes the sharpest critics of that wave of revival 
are the people from the last wave. And I'm like, well, wait, that's not how God moves. We saw God move. That's how he moves. But what counts is what the fruit is. There was a man, if you're in New England, you, I'm sure you've heard of him, but George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great preacher. He probably, in an age before television, uh, spoke to more people than anyone in the history of the world had ever spoken to at that time. Uh, he preached so long and to so many large crowds that, that he reached numbers of people, uh, the estimates are like 10 million, which if you consider that he lived in the 1700s, that's pretty impressive because he did not have Twitter. He just had to get out there and meet people. But one of the things he did very early on was he wasn't really uh, invited into a lot of pulpits, even though he was an Anglican clergyman. So he started preaching in fields. And what happened is people that wouldn't necessarily go to church, like really rough miners and, and laborers, would come out and hear him speak and would fall under conviction. And this led to revival in England. And when he came to the colonies, it read, led to revival in North America. We call it the First Great Awakening. And it really revitalized the spiritual life of, of the colonies. But he was always criticized because he was doing this out in the fields. He wasn't in churches. So you had people who were committed to the establishment and they weren't looking at what the fruit of this preaching was. They were just looking at the fact it wasn't done their way. And so they opposed it. See this over and over again in church history. I, um, when I was in college, there used to be this, uh, this place on the, on the campus called the United Campus Ministries, which was a cooperative ministry uh, center run by... Uh, several different Protestant churches. And anyway, I used, to, I used to go there a lot, and I used to have my lunch break there, and they had this wonderful library, and they had this massive, fat book on the shelves that I would always take down and read through, and it was the Handbook of Christian Denominations in North America. And it was massive. And there were all these different denominations. You could read about their histories and their distinctions. And, and so many of them started with disputes over things that just shouldn't matter. You know, you would, it's not quite this bad uh, for official denominations, but at the level of churches, it, it is this bad. You almost have like the red carpet Baptists and the blue carpet Baptists. Like, oh, you know, you're, you're getting away from the carpet we've always had. We can't go to church with you. And uh, I've said before in the, in the town I'm from in, in West Texas, San Angelo, uh, we had so many churches that you actually had shopping plazas with a church at each end um, because people split over little things. They're not looking at what the sovereign move of the Lord is. They're looking at, well, is this how we've always done things? But the early church really wasn't like that after the Council of Jerusalem. They were very inclusive. There's this wonderful document that's actually quite enjoyable to read that comes from the second century, but it probably re reflects a tradition earlier into the first century um, called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it has this wonderful section on baptism, because we have had entire denominations started over the question of baptism. You know, is it, is it believer's baptism? Is it infant baptism? Is it sprinkling? Is it immersion? 
And in the Didache, it says, you know, you should always baptize, you know, dunk them in running water. And if you don't have running water, you know, just dunk them in stagnant water. If you don't have stagnant water, just fill a, an urn and do that. And if you don't have an urn, you're in the desert and don't that, just, you know, grab a handful of water and dump it over their head. Totally understanding that it wasn't the method, it was what was being represented. It was people being included in God's family. So here we have this case of people thinking, well, this can't be God because it's, it's, it's not the way we've done it. And then Peter gets up and he gives his wonderful speech and he says, hey, you, you heard from me about how I went to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit was poured on them. And I, you know, we baptized them because if, if God declared them clean, who, weren't, who are we to say no? So he recounts that. And then James stands up. And this is not James the disciple. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who's become a leader in the Jerusalem church. Uh, he's, he, as a matter of fact, he is so well thought of by all the community that he's known as James the Just. Um, people said he's, his knees were as hard as a camel's knees because he spent so much time in prayer. Really well thought of. And he gives this wonderful statement that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And then he says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Now, his Jewish audience would have known what he's doing, and he's actually quoting from the prophet Amos, who talks about what will happen after the exile, after the destruction of Israel, when it's restored. And he gives this, uh, this prophecy, which James is quoting here. The interesting thing is that prophecy specifically concerns the nation of Edom. Now, it's one thing to, to talk about the Gentiles coming in, but Edom has a special place in Israel's history, a hate-filled place. Edom is the nation that was founded by Esau when Jacob and Esau split. If you read rabbinic literature from this time, they're always attributing all sorts of evil to Esau and the nation of Edom. They're emphasizing, this is wicked. Jacob was righteous, yeah, he tricked his brother, but his brother sold his birthright for a pile of lentil soup. Um, which I can't imagine doing. You know, split pea soup, maybe, but lentil soup? Nah. But so Esau has always been this example of the unfavored. As a matter of fact, you'll have this quote which derives from Malachi uh, that will be quoted in the New Testament, the statement, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And people will confuse that and think it means that arbitrarily God chose to save somebody and to condemn somebody. And that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about God determined to fulfill his promise through the line of Jacob, not through the line of Esau. But he hasn't forgotten Esau because he gives this prophecy in Amos. And he says at that time, just like you're the remnant of Israel coming back, the remnant of Esau will come to you. That family split that happened at the beginning of the call is going to be restored. And then he expands on that and says, all the peoples among the nations that call on my name will come in. 
So this is a powerful statement because he's not only saying, oh yes, there's precedent for the Gentiles to be saved, but he's putting it in terms of healing one of the deepest family splits in Israel's history. This is restoration. This is redemption for somebody the Jews really would have considered irredeemable. So now is he not only linking this to that fracture, that hated fracture in Israel's history, but now he's going on and he's kind of setting aside the law of Moses. He says, hey, don't put anything in these people's way. You know, Moses has been preached in synagogues for forever, which is true. The Jews had dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, ever since the Babylonian exile and the Persian exile, actually, before, or the Assyrian exile, before that, Jews had been distributed widely through the whole Mediterranean area. And where they had gone, they had set up synagogues and read from the Bible. So people always heard the Jewish preaching. And there were some converts to Judaism. There were a lot of people who became God-fearers. They heard the message and they loved it and believed in it. But they weren't ready to go all the way and follow all the customs of the law. So James is saying here, we, we shouldn't try and saddle them with this. That's, that's just getting in the way. God's already accepted them. Let's not make them follow the law of Moses because that's been out there forever. Now, Paul will elaborate on this. Paul in Galatians will talk about there's a couple things that the law does. One is it, he says, it locks the world up under sin. The law holds out this kind of magnifying glass to show the world what evil is, what wrong is, what falling short is. And it, even the people who are, you know, the covenant people under the law. You know, Peter says, hey, we shouldn't give them a yoke we couldn't bear ourselves. He's, he's aware of the fact they can never fulfill the law themselves, but that wasn't the function of the law. One of the functions of the law was just to show the world what evil was. It's already fulfilled that. These people who are coming to God are already convicted when God receives them. So they don't need the law for that thing. And Paul will also say, well, the law was kind of also set up as a caretaker for when you were children, kind of bringing you to the place of maturity. Well, when Jesus came, that was the maturity. So there's no longer a reason for Gentiles to have to observe the law. The law has fulfilled its, its purpose. So to ask them to follow it going forward is almost to deny that Jesus made things right. It's almost to deny the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, with great common sense, the apostles and elders write a letter to the church in Antioch, and they pick a couple of witnesses to go with the letter. Because if Paul and Barnabas came back and said, oh yeah, we talked to the church and everything's okay, people could always go, oh yeah, that's what they say, but you know, that's not the real thing. And even the letter, it's like, well, you know, it could be a forgery. But they send men to give testimony to the letter. Men who have risked their lives for the Lord, who will be trustworthy witnesses. And they send them to the church in Antioch to tell them, hey, you don't have to follow the law of Moses. Now, they do, it's kind of interesting because they say, oh, you don't have to follow the law. But they're going to give them some regulations anyway. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled 
animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And you think, well, you just said they don't need to follow the law. Isn't this kind of like a law? Isn't this like, you know, did they just mean, oh, you only have to find, follow a reduced, uh, a reduced set of the law? But actually, in the, that culture, these are all things that have to do with the worship of gods. One of the problems that Israel always had through its history was even though they were the called people, they were constantly mixing their religion with the religion of the nations around them. You, you find this when they're still wandering in the desert before they come into the Holy Land. They, they settle down and they take you know, wives from Moab and they start following after those gods and wrath of God burns against them. When they come into the Holy Land, they begin to worship some of the Canaanite gods, some of the local gods there, even setting up their altars in the temple. This has always been a snare for the nation of Israel. So what the council is writing a letter here to do is they're trying to say, hey, you don't need to follow the law, but be careful about doing anything that's going to bring you into the orbit of other types of worship, the worship of idols. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul will later fine-tune this, and he's like, you know, if somebody serves you meat, don't ask where it comes from. You know, it, it's fine for you to eat. But if they make a point of saying this was from the sacrifice to Zeus or whatever, don't eat it because you don't want to mix those things. The types of slaughtering that would be done for sacrifices there are the types of things that are being pushed to the side here by saying don't eat strangled animals, don't eat animals with the blood still in them. We don't want you to confuse your worship with the worship of other gods. And sexual immorality, and you might think, well, that's just, you know, that's just basic morality. Um, but that too actually was involved in the other, in the worship of other gods. That was, sexual immorality was actually central to the worship of most of the fertility god, goddesses um, and cults in the Mediterranean. Um, you would have sacred temple prostitutes and that's, that's how you worshiped those gods. So when they're giving them these instructions, they're saying, you serve, you're now, you've been accepted by the Holy One of Israel, you've been accepted by the creator of the world, so don't go mixing that with the gods of this world that aren't really gods. That's what these instructions are about. Now that may seem kind of alien to us because we don't have obvious temples to Aphrodite or temples to Mammon or temples to Mars the god of war, we don't have those things around, so we would think, oh, you know, that's probably something I don't really have to worship, you know, worry about, that worshiping idols. But those things are still around. They just have different names. When you do things like make your career your highest goal, yeah, you're in the Temple of Mammon. When you make... and you know, Timothy Keller puts it great when he says you make idols by taking good things and elevating them to ultimate things. It is, it is good to provide for your family. It's absolutely good to provide for your family. But when you put that first, you're in the Temple of Mammon. It is good for people to be safe. But when you elevate national security to an ultimate place, you're worshiping the god Mars. And I don't have to tell you that we as a culture, we worship the goddess Aphrodite. 
we, we may not have any temples to Aphrodite, but there has probably never been a society as saturated by sexual imagery and, and sexual ideals as this one. And, and God doesn't say that's, you know, acting in a bad way. He says, that's, that's idolatry. God gave us relations between, God made us man and woman and made it so that one of the best experiences of life is, is finding that other person and coming together. That is a gift of God. But when you elevate that to an ultimate place, You're worshiping in the temple of Aphrodite. You're not abstaining from sexual immorality. We, we don't think of it as that way, but that's really what it was. So that's this case. God is bringing in new people. He's creating a new thing. He's, he's bringing people for his name out of the nations. And the people that have preserved his witness up to that, this point, their job is just to accept those people in not to put extra burdens on them, but as we see here, to give them a little wisdom from their own experience. Hey, this is, this is what has always tripped us up. Don't let it trip you up. Now, if you know the history of the church, much like the history of Israel, some of these uh, things still become uh, a hindrance to the church. Now, the church does pretty good. They... they they do pretty good on the sexual immorality thing, if not in practice, at least in, in preaching. They never really kind of embrace that as a way to be, whether or not privately people are doing that. But they will fall back on relying on worldly power. You have basically 300 years where the church is variously illegal but tolerated or illegal but persecuted, and the church does really well. But once the church becomes an official part of the Roman state, they, they don't stay away from idols so well. They begin to embrace power for its own sake. And we see that right down to our own day. How often is the primary engagement of the church with the world about power instead of about witness? John puts it best when he, he concludes his message to the people he's writing to. The Apostle John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And that is some of the best advice. Because God accepts for himself people from every nation, but God's spirit is jealous and he won't share his people with any other gods.